Hi, um, this is a very special episode of The First that makes it sound like it's going to be talking about special issues. We've got a special guest. No, we have have a special guest. Sorry, Um, everyone. So this is episode 34.5. As you may have heard in episode 34, if you've listened by now, you should have listened by now. Yeah, sort out. We went to see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and we decided that it kind of probably would require more space than our episode the last episode would have given it so we decided to do it as a mini so mini so basically just so that we could talk a bit longer and not try and give you a three-hour podcast slightly which... less stress it'll probably still be a three-hour podcast to be fair but... potentially so uh yes yeah, so it's episode 34.5 so we're going to be covering once upon a time in hollywood the new quentin tarantino film yes so bit of a wikipedia intro for anyone who apparently hasn't heard of the film which would be you know well, pretty imagine. much. Imagine. Imagine. Firstly, I keep on wanting to call it Once Upon a Time in Mexico, so I'll try very hard not to do that. But if I do it, sorry. It just keeps happening. <laughs> it's fine. Yes. Yeah, so this is Quentin Tarantino's ninth film. He's reportedly only going to do ten. And it's his first without producer Harvey Weinstein, which is, you know, probably good for him, I guess. Just good for all of us. Just generally a good thing. For good everyone. for the world. It stars Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie, Emil Hirsch, Margaret Qualley, Timothy Oliphant, Austin Butler, Damian Lewis, Luke Perry, Dakota Fanning, Bruce Dern, Al Pacino, in addition to many, 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 many more. It would probably be easier to list who isn't in this film. Yes, quite the ensemble cast. It's like uh, the Avengers, but just, I don't know. But not. <laughs> but not. <laughs> Been called Tarantino's love letter to 60s LA, and it's a tribute to the final moments of Hollywood's golden age. So it's the film itself is set in 1969 in Hollywood, where everything is changing. TV star Rick Dalton, who's played by Leonardo DiCaprio, and his longtime stunt double Cliff Booth, played by Brad Pitt, make their way around an industry they hardly recognise anymore. But Rick has a very famous next-door neighbour, Sharon Tate. So the film had its world premiere at the Cannes Film Festival on the 21st of May, and it was theatrically released in the United States on the 26th of July. But we, lowly United Kingdom, did not get it until the 14th of August. To be honest, that was quite close, actually. I mean, that was pretty good for... In the grand scheme of things. In the grand scheme of things, it's not like six months later. No, I think I thought actually at the time that it was going to be everywhere at the same time. Yeah, I know. That threw me a bit. I mean, it made it slightly hard to navigate Twitter for a bit, but... um, I forgot I'd muted everything, and then I realised I thought it was slightly strange that I hadn't seen anyone talking about it. No one in your Twitter sphere gives a shit about this film. And then I realised I'd um, actually purposefully muted the various phrases, including like, Quentin Tarantino, Tarantino... I mean, for better or for worse, it's probably best to mute Quentin Tarantino anyway. I will be honest, I've left that as a muted phrase. Yeah, I think that's entirely fair. So yeah, from what we probably gathered on Twitter before we saw the film, it's had pretty good reviews. It's got an 85% on Rotten Tomatoes, 83% on Metacritic. I feel like it's a bit of a hard film to tease apart or try to sort of structure a conversation around, but we're going to do our best. Firstly, what were your thoughts or feelings or anticipations before we went to see the film? So I feel like I've got quite a conflicting relationship with Quentin Tarantino. Hard same. In the sense that when I first started getting into like movies, Mm -hmm. I guess, in a particularly hardcore way, Quentin Tarantino's films were ones that I was like very into. I mean, that's, I mean, it's like a rite of passage really, isn't it? It feels that way, doesn't it? I remember vividly like the first time I saw Reservoir Dogs was like very late on Mm -hmm. Channel 4 one night and I'd like taped it and I remember watching it and being like, my mum would kill me if she knew I was watching this. 
realise. And then I went through like a pop fiction phase, like I feel like everyone does. Uh, absolutely. Still got the fringe. Right. And then you become acutely aware of like how maybe things are problematic and he mm-hmm. says stuff. And as, as basically as I've gotten older, my attitude towards him has just sort of nosedived a little bit. Yeah, it's just, yeah. yeah, shift is a good way of thinking about it. So I was sort of, with regards to that, I was actually kind of surprised by how much i was looking forward to seeing this mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um it feels like a very rare occurrence that i get hyped for a quentin tarantino film i think the last time i experienced that was probably inglorious bastards yeah i feel like the same came absolutely out 10 years ago i mean since then which is had... mad by the way 10 years it's actually 10 years ago today as i Ooh, saw on twitter that's a lot bizarre so in since that we've had django unchained and we've had hateful um, eight hateful eight which mm. i haven't actually seen hateful eight Let's put it this way. I, I mean, I know you did as well. Like, I really loved Inglorious Bastards. Mm-hmm. Um, Django, I liked, and then I was not fussed at all about Hateful Eight. In no. fact, I think I basically did something else whilst I was watching it because I was just quite bored. Yeah, sure. So it's been a while since I've actually been like, oh, okay, Quentin Tarantino will be pumped to go and see this. Um, I think that the inclusion of Brad Pitt and Margot Robbie in particular caught my eye. Yes. Um, the particular um, historic time period that it covers. Mm-hmm. So, like you say, it's the late sixties, and also the fact that the plot kind of covers Hollywood and the, the film industry as a whole is sort of extremely my shit really I feel so. like that's very on brand for this podcast generally like Hollywood celebrity culture and filmmaking is just it's just the type of thing where I'm like on the head whether it's a film whether it's TV whether it's, it's a book that's something that I'm like oh yeah that's you know my area of, of interest I was apprehensive when I learned that it was going to include the Manson mm-hmm. family and the Tate killings and I was also apprehensive after it showed at Cannes mostly because a lot of the chatter was about Margot Robbie as yeah. Sharon Tate and whether her role was purposefully limited but her lack of dialogue obviously having now seen the film we can kind of come to those conclusions mm-hmm. ourselves I'm sure we will discuss that mm-hmm. but those that was something that when it was when I was reading about that I was like oh okay slightly a little bit worried and my final feeling going into it was two hours and 41 minutes are we sure yeah i mean everything feels like it has to be an epic marathon of like three hours now doesn't completely. it? completely and it's quentin tarantino and he makes long films so that is fine but i feel like that's something that we keep discussing is actually like does this need to be that long yeah so, which ones warrant being that long? yeah which i think in fine? terms of like my feeling going into it that was probably the final nail in the coffin i think in terms of like oh, who's this i just felt very kind of excited but also apprehensive yeah i I think I'd put appre- a lot of apprehension down as sort of my general feeling going in as well. Like I'm a, I like Tal- Tarantino, and there are films that I like a lot more than others. As I said, I wasn't fussed at all about Hateful Eight; it was just really long, and mm. I was quite bored. Loved the idea of you know sixties Hollywood by a director who loves filmmaking. Well, yeah, and the craft of filmmaking. Loved the idea of Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie, a- even other actors that were in you know in the mix. But the Manson murders again was really apprehensive about that, and you know, do we want Tarantino style violence applied to the Manson murders and I was a bit worried about what kind of stance the film would take and how focused it would be on that aspect and especially because it's kind of you know it's the anniversary of the Sharon Tate and murder and it, it had the potential to be quite tasteless and there was also a lot of fallout at Cannes as you said so Tarantino had sort of said he rejected this reporter's hypothesis that Margot Robbie had been marginalised in the film and that she didn't have much to say and she very much jumped to his defence and also the Weinstein stuff has just put a bit of dampener on things because I think now you know I, there were a lot of questions around Tarantino and how much he knew and how much he you know Mm, let Weinstein get away with and he admitted that you know I knew enough to do more than I did and I was a little bit apprehensive 
And I was also aware that it had the real, it had the potential to be a very masculine film, especially with sort of, as much as I love Brad Pitt and Leonardo mm. DiCaprio and was like, wow, seeing these two together is so exciting. I was just like, this this could be a very masculine film. Yeah, completely. And that, I definitely had that vibe myself. And I don't know about you, actually. I was thinking about this today when I was kind of doing some prep for this. I was thinking about how as soon as it became apparent that it was going to be covering the Tate murders, I just felt a bit like, have we reached Manson family saturation oh, point I mean, in culture? Such saturation point with Manson. And I know it's the 50th anniversary this year, so it feels like timely in that sense. But it just feels like there's been a lot of pop culture that we've consumed, whether it's books, whether it's Mm -hmm. other TV shows that seem to be kind of coming back to the idea of the Manson family. And that in itself is something that we've off mic talked quite a lot about, about the kind of romanticisation of Charles Manson, about this kind of the mythology of the Manson family and the Tate killings. And actually... You know, it just, do we it just, need it again? I mean, of all, as you say, like if you're, you know, growing up, if you're some sort of like goth teenager like myself, you start reading about all kinds of things. Like Charles Manson's your like first go to on that kind of journey, isn't yeah. it? Like reading about Helter Skelter and all that absolute nonsense and this whole like taste for true crime recently. Charles Manson's at, like the top of that. That is yeah. the one that people go to most. They talk about most. There have been endless it's shows, an obvious and reference, books, and yeah, it's just it is total. And as a pop culture kind of icon in terms of, you know, like everything from t-shirts to like it's just absolutely everywhere and it is quite boring to be honest we've discussed this before how actually out of you know a lot of those the aspects of the Manson family and the Manson murders that I find interesting are the sort of the Hollywood aspects Mm. and the way that it sort of affected Hollywood and it effectively that was like the end of the golden era of Hollywood wasn't it and I find that interesting but not the actual the murders themselves and him as a sort of a character I just people just give him too much credit so yeah yeah, I think we were both really apprehensive but also quite excited because it did have the potential to talk about things that we we do really like yeah and I do remember saying to you in advance like I'm sort of worried about how much I might like this film yeah and I think especially with Brad Pitt Mm. and Leo Mm. it was like I could watch those two together on screen it just felt like such a treat yeah that I just I think we both sort of went in going oh god we're really gonna like this do you want to give your general impressions overarching impression now you have seen it yeah so it's been a few days we we sort of we saw it on Friday and then we recorded episode 34 actually on Saturday and we'd agreed to not include it mostly because a we didn't think we'd have time to prep but also I think I personally wanted a little bit of time to process because mm-hmm. I had a feeling that I was likely to come away with a lot of stuff that mm-hmm, I wanted to unpack mm-hmm. a little bit and now we've had some sort of distance from it I do think I liked it I knew that I would I sort of hate that I do mm-hmm. I can understand why perhaps it's been quite polarising Quentin Tarantino obviously comes with a lot of baggage like we've said you kind of have to grapple with which I've myself have built with have grappled with in the build up to it and the, and the aftermath it's definitely the, the Quentin Tarantino film that I've enjoyed the most since Inglorious Bastards mm-hmm. it felt very immersive in the sense that you I hate saying like oh I wanted to live in it because it sounds just stupid but it was something about just you just feel very absorbed by Mm -hmm. it the way that he kind of depicts Los Angeles it's very warm it's just yeah it's it's like that inviting I like this idea like a few people had called it kind of like kaleidoscopic like very colorful very detailed very hot and Mm. dusty and sort of just very colorful and there's so many elements to it and I yeah it's very sort of I don't know fantastical and it's just yeah it's really 
fully absorbing there's a lot as a to, time and place there's a lot to look at like there are in lots of quentin tarantino mm. films and that's the kind of thing that i do enjoy about the work that he produces there's always something in the frame to kind of you know pick apart like i remember there's something there's one particular scene towards the beginning that i keep coming back to which is when rick and cliff so leonardo dicaprio and brad mm-hmm. pitt are stood outside the restaurant they first go to where rick dalton meets with the agent who's played by al pacino mm. there's a sign between them which is advertising the restaurant and it says like oldest in hollywood i think and there's it's just this brilliant shot of like rick and cliff and then oldest in hollywood is yeah, like between yeah, them and yeah. it's just it's stuff like that that mm. quentin tarantino is very good at so it's it's just the visuals of it i did i did quite like i think something i found quite difficult to kind of get my head around and i don't know how if this is true of yourself it's the difficulty of knowing a lot about the manson family and mm-hmm. the manson murders you sort of preempt or presume stuff so as soon as you kind of see that rick dalton lives on cielo drive yeah i was like okay cool right you know where this is building yeah, up to you know where this is going mm-hmm. up to so when they mention you know there's a uh, a hitchhiker that cliff sort of keeps driving past and he eventually picks up and they're talking and she says about how they're living on like a, a movie lot and then mm-hmm. you're like oh that's spun right yeah. and i I think that for me was just a little bit frustrating in the sense that like because I know stuff about the Manson Mm -hmm, family mm -hmm. and the Manson murders just from like we've said absorbing things from you know books podcasts just generally the culture I felt like I was kind of preempting things which mm-hmm. which is personally I found a little bit frustrating I do wonder what what it would be like to go into this film and not know anything about that really and whether yeah. the film would have the same effect because on the flip side I think a lot of the tension of some parts of the film that you're anticipating like you know what's coming so you've got a lot of anticipation and you feel like you know what it's going to build up to and it's not going to be nice whereas I wonder if that how you have that feeling at all if you don't know anything about the what's actually quite interesting is we were just talking about Mindhunter mm. um, season two which I'm sure we'll talk about on the podcast later on at some point but one of the episodes of that mm-hmm. features Charles Manson and what was funny was I was watching it with Thomas who doesn't really know a huge amount about mm-hmm. the Manson family or the Sharon Tate killings or anything mm. like that and there was stuff where in that particular episode they were referring to different things about mm-hmm. the um the crimes and I was like oh you know just kind of being yeah. like ha, ha, just sort of every time they would say stuff yeah and tom was just sat there just like just deadpan completely deadpan yeah and i think like that you're completely right I, it would be very interesting to know what someone who didn't know anything about anything like that mm-hmm. which is possible i suppose but i mm. feel like because because charles manson as a, as a figure and the, the take killings as a, a moment in culture mm-hmm. are so embedded in you know history and culture mm. widely i do feel like that kind of underpins the viewing yeah of it. i think it does yeah i think in a way like you um and i'm sure we'll talk about this as well like you can i personally feel like i could get away with not knowing loads about like western films for example yeah. but it, i think you would the film wouldn't have the same effect if you didn't really know much about the manson no because and because it does reference sort of elements of popular culture from that period there are things that i was like oh i guess that's probably similar so like bonanza is a tv show yeah, yeah, a yeah, Western. yeah so that's my reference point is knowing what bonanza is yeah. i haven't watched any of it but those shows that rick dalton is appearing mm-hmm. in you can kind of make that connection like oh that's a comparative thing yeah i'm sure there are we know the cowboy tropes as well so absolutely it's and i'm sure there are shitloads of other references to tv and films from that particular period that mm-hmm. we haven't picked up on but i don't think it undermined my enjoyment of it no. but i do think that the, the manson thing is so overarching that mm. it just i don't know 
it, I was just thinking about it constantly while we were reviewing it. And it didn't mm-hmm. necessarily kind of ruin my enjoyment of it, but it, mm. it was like a spectre mm-hmm. um, shadow in there. Mm. Um, I did sort of quite like on that note, though, the, the fact that Manson as a figure only appears in it for a split second. Honestly, like 10 seconds. I did learn today, actually, that Damon Herriman, who plays him in the film, has said that there were other things that were filmed, but they've since been cut. Yeah, I assume they'd been cut because, I mean, they wouldn't just get him in for 10 seconds. I assume maybe he had more of a presence and they decided There's to something that's in the trailer out. for definite that's definitely yeah, I remember we had this conversation that it's in the trailer. And I guess sometimes they put things in the trailers that aren't, that are deliberately not in the film, but I feel like this time was probably, yeah, they had cut it. And I wondered if actually if that was if that was post-can or anything like that. I mean, mm-hmm. what was what, what did you sort of think coming out of it? I think I felt very similar to you. Like, I really, I really enjoyed it. As guilty as that makes me feel in a way, but also I shouldn't feel guilty, but you know what I mean. Yeah, I really enjoyed it and I felt very... I was totally absorbed by it and I you know those two and three quarter hours like actually flew by for me. I was saying to Tom actually because he that was the thing that he asked me about as soon as I got home was like oh did did it feel like a bit of a slog and I was like to be honest the only time I was really checking my watch was because I was I was really tired that day mm-hmm. and I think I out of interest t- checked my watch a couple of times mm-hmm. just because I was sort of conscious of like oh actually I wonder what you know yeah how far how it, yeah, it is yeah. I mean for a film as well that doesn't you know it's not particularly heavy on the action like through the yeah. duration of the film you know the first two thirds maybe even more three quarters you know there's not loads going on it's a very sort of beach heavy like yeah you know dialogue heavy film like any Quentin um, Tarantino yeah yeah like any Tarantino it, but it just kind of flew by for me and even though I do know that it's a it is a very masculine film as I kind of expected and a very male focused film and there are some very valid criticisms of it that we will I'm sure we'll discuss I also I really enjoyed it and it felt like the most sort of nostalgic sentimental film that I think I've ever seen of Tarantino's it has a lot of his sort of trademark aspects but some of it felt like Tarant like quintessential Tarantino and some of it didn't some of it felt like an you know yeah a definitely more kind of nostalgic sentimental feeling I definitely noticed that contrast I mean he's known as being someone who's very dialogue focused Mm. and those like Quentin Tarantino-esque long Mm. monologues and speeches and there was a lot of that in there that felt like him but I do think that you're right that it has a very sentimental tone to it in mm. a way that I I don't think I've thought of any other Tarantino no, films. I no. think maybe it, you could say that about Jackie Brown but mm. of the others there's just that you know I don't think of like I don't think of Reservoir Dogs and go like oh that's a very oh, yeah. sentimental yeah. film yeah. or anything oh, yeah. like that you just don't that's not, yeah, that's not, not from, a vibe not from my viewing really no not at all so that was really interesting let's talk a bit about the themes I guess some of the overarching themes of the film and again I felt like this is a very thematic film and mm. there were like you know you can draw a lot from it and there were some very obvious themes the first one being sort of predominantly Hollywood films filmmaking with this sort of focus on western so Rick is a aging tv actor who's known for his work on the tv show Bounty Law and he's sort of got to the point where he's almost sort of reduced to begging for kind of the villain parts and he's kind of you know up against the 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 new up-and-comers like Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate and they're sort of existing on the periphery of his life but yeah very very Hollywood centric and about the golden age of Hollywood as well yeah completely nostalgia was the one thing that when I was sort of writing my immediate thoughts afterwards Mm. nostalgia was the thing I'd written about four times yeah me too over over, like a couple of different bullet points because it just feels so nostalgic for that period in Hollywood it feels so nostalgic for LA as a whole which Mm. that's Mm. something that I think that you can make through lines with a lot of Tarantino's work anyway is that so many of his films are based in Los Mm. Angeles and I think it doesn't come as a surprise that he's 
focusing in, on this era and this film. But, no, completely. Um, if you know anything about him and his interests and things that he he's mentioned as reference points and, you know, throughout his career, that particular time period um, is obviously something that he really has a lot of affection for. Mm. Um, and a lot of his films are often very nostalgic anyway, so down mm. to the soundtracks mm. and stuff. Mm. He often, you know, um, dapples things with reference points that yeah. are outside of that immediate retro, yeah, yeah, films, time yeah. frame. So that was something that is just so palpable, I think, in the film. I think it would be really hard to avoid it. I mean, yeah. the sentimentality side of things, it definitely has a vibe that I don't think I've seen in any of his films. I really liked the relationship between Rick and Cliff. Yeah, um, this idea idea that Rick's career is perhaps not what it could have been or should have been there's a point where he talks to another character about the idea that actually he could have had Steve McQueen oh yeah yeah and he literally lists everyone and then yeah yeah and it's this idea of you know the real Hollywood I suppose versus the the imagined idea of it and yeah and Rick always sort of exists in that doesn't he yeah completely but you've got this kind of idea about actually for an actor in Hollywood or a filmmaker or any anyone within the industry it is a case of like or oh, what if I'd got that part and mm. that's something often that you you know whenever I seeing films or anything like that sometimes if I have a look at like the trivia or the potential castings it's really oh, yeah, there's so many possibilities isn't yeah there? and it's interesting to think about like oh well what would have happened if like Jake Gyllenhaal had been Spider-Man mm-hmm, for example mm-hmm. which is something that could have happened it went to Tobey Maguire but it's interesting mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know to think about like oh those kind of what ifs the what and ifs that, and that's the... what that's something that I kind of feel like the, the film plays with a lot thematically and I guess there's also the idea of like people having to prove their relevancy and that's again something yeah. that comes across so much with regards to Rick and his career you know the fact that he's potentially a has-been you could make really big connections between Quentin Tarantino and this mm-hmm. idea of actually is he kind of you know he's he's obviously a very iconic director but Mm. actually is his era over over the things that he's putting across in his films perhaps becoming dated and Mm -hmm. in this new landscape is that something and then you've got two like big legacy actors because they are legacy Mm -hmm. actors now Mm -hmm. like Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio and it's kind of interesting to think about them situated in a film like this playing two characters Mm -hmm. who are kind of grappling with their position yeah that's the the bit that really sort of struck me as well like the fact that yeah it's very much about sort of a love note to the golden age of Hollywood but it's also a lot about the what ifs and like a lot of endings so you know it's set technically at the end of what people say is the kind of golden age you know the close of the 1960s and as these months murders happen and the end of Rick's career and there's a lot of sentimentality around aging I felt really like I said to you that I was really struck by I mean even though they're obviously still very beautiful people you know it's amazing to see how much Brad and Leo have aged now because I'm still so used to seeing after repeated watching the films in which they are so much younger so it feels like they're almost like trapped in time like I've got this image of them in my head and actually they're so much older now and you don't you just kind of forget that until you see them on the screen. I think it's actually really interesting for them as actors for people like us. So there's they are older than us, but mm. I do think that there are... Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio are two actors who I think have had several iconic roles oh, yeah. within our lifetime in terms of, like, touchstone reference points. Mm-hmm. And I do think there's a lot to be said about this idea of, like, remembering actors specifically for big iconic roles. Yeah. So yeah. if you've got someone like 
Harrison Ford, for mm-hmm. example, to so many people, he will always be Han Solo or yeah. he'll be always Indiana be Indiana Jones, Jones because yeah. those are his two big iconic and he's said like no one else can play them yeah and they're almost like frozen in time and i think that there's something about brad pitt and leonardo dicaprio i mean we were having a conversation about like well what's you know what's our favorite brad pitt film Mm -hmm, what's the mm -hmm. best brad pitt film and that's a conversation you could also have about leo and it's like you know i think you think leo you do think of like titanic you think Mm -hmm. of romeo and julia you know and i you know i'm sure that people older or younger than us would have different reference points but i think that going into a film like this you are immediately using your frames of reference yeah totally to those two iconic actors in a way that i think the film almost monopolizes a little bit i think it does absolutely it's it's very knowing as you say and a lot of it feels like it could easily be a reflection on tarantino's career as well on the sort of way that the train keeps moving on and you know rick's interaction with all these younger cast members they've got sort of the young trudy girl who takes herself very you know very seriously as a young actress and when cliff goes back to spawn ranch you know where he used to work and yeah lots of interactions with the younger brighter up and comers really the young hollywood and there's a lot of you were sort of saying about the what ifs the sort of unfulfilled potential sort of stretches to sharon tate as well and the time we spend with her and that feeling of like there is time in this film to think about the ways in which she was a great actress and she was probably going on to even greater things and how you know we know that in reality that was really wasted yeah completely and i think that there's a lot to be said about the idea of endings and yeah what if there's a something that always is so heavily tied to um whenever you are discussing the manson and this Mm. idea of like the 60s coming to an end there's a a joan didion quote from the white album which Mm. is a book that a collection of essays that she wrote in 1979 and it's this always always comes up i am going to quote it because it does feel like it's an interesting Mm. thing to unpack it's many people i know in los angeles believe that the 60s ended abruptly on august 9th 1969 at the exact moment when word of the murders on cielo drive traveled like a bush fire through the community and in a sense this is true the tension broke that day the paranoia was fulfilled and i do think that's something that kind of looms throughout the film Mm. this sort of is there a kind of a cultural turning point triggered by a horrific event or just or something like that and and this idea of what ifs this notion that actually if if sharon hadn't died Mm. that day what would have happened Mm -hmm. to rick's career you know and and i think what would have happened to the manson family family? yeah Yeah. you know what would they have gone and killed elsewhere Mm -hmm. would they actually have maybe kind of thought oh no we'll just stop because two of our own have been taken do you know Mm -hmm. what i mean i just Mm -hmm. thought there's so much to be said about this idea of what ifs and actually there is kind of um, revisionist history Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. again which i'm sure that's something that we'll we'll talk about i mean we've mentioned the cast Mm. um it is a really kind of i hate saying tarantino west i was literally about to say that as well it's a thing it's a phrase that's going to be repeated a lot it is a very tarantino west cask though. but just when you were listing at the beginning like everyone who's in it yeah it's just i hadn't actually realized until probably the week before we actually saw this that brad pitt and leonardo dicaprio haven't been in a film together no i didn't think they had either which and it feels like they have again because of that sense of like they're such i don't know iconic actors completely you know those the the films that they've been in are such sort of touchstones in our own sort of film watching and you just assume they have yeah completely and this feels like a career best for leo it is i think it it proves again it kind of ties into some of those themes like it kind of proves his strength as an actor i guess because you know as much as people love Romeo and Juliet and Titanic, I don't think they're necessarily applauding them for like their acting merits, I no. guess, in the same way. So he, this feels like Leo 
sort of older Leo proving himself in the way that Rick Dalton's kind of trying to prove himself as well. Completely. And to that end, it feels like a very knowing performance. I feel like he's so acutely aware of his legacy and position within Hollywood. There's that, I mean, this comes up when we're talking about Mm -hmm. like favourite scenes, but there's a scene where he goes back to the trailer and he's just sort of chastising himself. Oh yeah, the one in the... And it just, that that for me just comes from a place of someone acutely aware of knowing how people perceive him as being an actor that sort of takes himself seriously yeah, and really yeah. wants to like win an Oscar and stuff like that. Oh yeah, of course, you know, Oscar, yeah, uh, Leo never wins an Oscar, but I also just really loved Brad Pitt's performance in this. This was such a good performance And I think that his, his performance as Cliff as well is, is definitely informed by what you know about him as a character on and off screen and also kind of feels like it references some of his other performances without yeah, his yeah, career. Yeah, absolutely. There's a bit of Aldo Reigns in this from Inglorious, just the mm-hmm, way he kind mm-hmm. of, his, some of his intonation, some of his sudden charm. I always, always, always come back to Rusty Oceans, in Oceans yeah. because always. it has that very chilled, back, mm-hmm. laid back vibe. You know, the way that Rusty and... Um, I just assume that that's what Brad Pitt is like. In my head, that's what he's like. This is literally what Brad Pitt's like. Completely. And the way that the dynamic works between Danny Ocean and Rusty mm-hmm, in Ocean's mm-hmm. Eleven, it has a kind of similar sort of twosome mm. right-hand man yeah. side of things in the way that he works with Rick. You know, he's Rick's stunt man, but he's also essentially his gopher. He's his chauffeur. He does stuff for him at home. He's, he's his best pal. And he his keeps best him, friend, April. Yeah, it keeps him company. I just what's interesting is that the knowingness. I know that's not really a word, but the way that this film sort of yeah is winking at you because these these actors know how we perceive yeah. them is kind of. Like, I felt like a kind of a side to both of these actors that you don't really get to see because they're so famous, they're so guarded yeah. in real life. Like we don't really know much about them. And I don't think I've really seen them in films where, yeah, it almost feels like they're in the same way that Tarantino is sort of opening up and feeling sentimental and nostalgic and sort of reflective. It felt like they were being like that as well in a way that I've never really experienced with them before. Like, can you imagine Leo, like Leo DiCaprio sort of opening up about how he feels or how he's aging out of Hollywood. Completely. I feel like it's very manipulative with this idea of celebrity and Mm. what you think you know about celebrity versus what they're actually like. And it's sort of, you know, funny to sort of get this glimpse into like what they do when they go home from set in the evening. And I think you're right in in the sense that there is a knowingness Mm. to both of their performances. Can we just quickly discuss Brad Pitt? Do you want a monologue? A really, really just a sidebar an inappropriate sidebar i mean it's our podcast so we can do what you want how dare brad pitt be so hot it is who gave him the right no one i didn't give him the right i was sort of going in half expecting to spend almost three hours trying to work out whether i found leonardo dicaprio attractive like you know, on the surface of things, yeah, Leo DiCaprio is attractive, but like whether I'm attracted to him. And I just got completely blindsided because I've taken for granted for a long time because Brad Pitt is extremely handsome. He's just always there. He's always there. He's always handsome. Of course, Brad Pitt's hot. Ridiculously hot in this. Older Brad Pitt is doing something entirely new for me. It's like offensively attractive. He's like 55 April. It's fucking despicable. Isn't it rude? It's just, I think, and I think the thing is as well, is that I was immediately overwhelmed by the heat of him. Right? As soon as he was on screen. The like, tanned, like ripped body. I think I just, that my when we were in the cinema, I remember leaning across to you probably within the first two seconds and was like, you know, 
how I said I definitely wouldn't, I probably wouldn't sleep with Leo. Well, that's not true. I definitely Also, would. Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt. It's just palpable. It's it really, like, overwhelmingly crazy. so. And then I just, I mean, I feel like over the last few days, all we, all we have both collectively done is just... Talk Google about Brad Pitt. Talk about Google Brad, Brad Pitt, Pitt. Pitt. Think about him. Google him. There's so a, pictures of him. There's immediately about ten films that I want to watch <sighs> just to revisit, I and I want to see more of older Brad Pitt because it's a vibe. he's just there's something extra about it that yeah. I just I think it's he oh, he's just aged so well. He's so ripped, but in just like a really natural, just a naturally hot way. In a way that I feel like Leo is definitely growing old gracefully he's not he's retaining he's a hundred percent had some work done it, he's not retaining that like adolescent 20s no. like, level of, no. of hotness but i feel like i definitely after some very investigative google image searching i definitely some zooming in yeah, with your I, fingers on the yeah. iphone i definitely feel like Brad Pitt is like just somehow optimum like hotness at the moment. Optimum, optimum hotness. I just that can be the sidebar, but I just I had to address. It's not how a sidebar in the sense that there is a line in the film where someone tells him he's too good looking. Oh yeah, stuntman, and he says yes. That's what they tell me. Oh my god! Just felt like... So knowing again, you can just imagine Brad Pitt being like, yeah. I know. Everyone tells me I'm the most handsome man on earth. Um, I am aware. Other people who are very handsome, Margot Robbie. Is so goddamn beautiful. I don't know what it is, but I've just truly gone from thinking that Margot Robbie is like fine and she's all right Mm -hmm. to just being like, just love her. Just hyped on her. So impassioned. She seems seems utterly lovely. She's so delightful. And also, and Sharon Tate in this is delightful, really. She's quite elusive in the way that she kind of exists on the periphery of the film in the way that she does for rick i guess they're sort of crossing paths but they're not quite she's she's very elusive for him but she just conveys so much beauty and good naturedness there's There's a warmth to her yeah she's like the opposite of dalton she seems quite selfish she takes that hitchhiker for a ride you know she just seems really and i think it's interesting as well because there's there's something to be said about sharon tate as a cultural figure that mm-hmm. it feels like we know so much about her because of how she's included mm-hmm. in this really horrible thing but also we don't really know a huge amount about no. her and it was only so we kind of briefly alluded to this idea of kind of the continued sort of revisiting of the Manson mm-hmm. family and culture and it was only really when I listened to that Karina Longworth mm-hmm. um, you must remember this series that she did on Manson in Hollywood. definitely recommended if you're into Hollywood and the whole context of the, the landscape around the Manson murders especially coming at things from a very female point of view mm-hmm. which so rarely seems to happen but yeah. it was only when I listened to that that I really learned a huge amount about mm. her about her relationship with Polanski about how yeah. she came to Hollywood really. that's not told very often and it's not and I just feel like there's something very interesting about that the way that she's kind of at the centre of it but, but also not. not at all and yeah. While I do think that Tate's positioning in the film is kind of, I don't know, it's, it's very interesting and I feel mm-hmm, like there's a mm-hmm. lot you could, you could say about it. I feel like Margot Robbie brings to the... She does so much with essentially so mm-hmm. little, yeah. if that makes sense. And you it's, you kind of... Just the idea of seeing Sharon go about her day and, mm-hmm. you know, maybe she walked past this movie theatre mm-hmm. maybe she went to go into the film. and There's this whole fantasy around her going into the cinema yeah, and watching and her watching own film. and watching herself. And you can see her and she's listening to people laughing at the stuff that she's doing 
on screen in like a really nice mm-hmm. way because they're obviously enjoying the film and you see her kind of acting out stuff that you know that she's practiced mm. for filming of the film and it's just mm. there was something so much about it that regardless of how little dialogue in theory mm. that if you actually went and counted sentences she has mm. you just get a sense of maybe like who, who Sharon she was. was in a way I that I just so. don't think you do from so much stuff that's written about the I, yeah I was thinking how with the exception of that podcast you referenced like this is the most time I've ever spent with Sharon Tate yeah like it really is especially on screen and she's still not in it a lot but no. she's definitely got more screen time here than I've seen her in other things and she's got more screen time than manson in Mm. this and parts of the manson family as well and i mean we'll get into kind of criticisms around how maybe how much you know how much she does feature but as an actress margot robbie was fantastic in this and just absolutely ideal she completely embodied her i think in a way that i thought was it was a very interesting take and one that i felt worked Mm. for me for definite and was there anything that you casting wise you didn't think well, to be honest, probably or anyone just, else from the cast that you yeah, kind of wanted to. I think shout out to a lot of the younger actors in yeah. this, this sort of young Hollywood who are up and coming. Um, and again, they are a lot of them are very much people who are you would see as up and comers in in actual Hollywood now. Yeah. So you know, Margaret Qualley is Pussycat. Austin Butler is a you know he was very good as Tex. He was very good. I I feel quite assured that he's going to be very good in that Elvis film. I've just written. Am I an Austin Butler fan now? 100%. I mean, I watched the Carrie Diaries, so I enjoyed. <laughs> so him you were in part an Austin Butler fan. Yeah. He's so handsome. That's neither here nor there, isn't it? Sorry, but he is really handsome, and he is really good in this. Actually, in terms good. of like acting, he's deeply prowess. unsettling. He's, yeah, really unsettling, and actually a really strong actor. You got Dakota Fanning, who makes an appearance. Um, really unnerving. Maya Hawke. Is it Maya or Maya? I say Maya, but yeah, Maya Hawk. It was just a delight to see because we love her so much. I think I didn't. I think I'd somehow, despite the fact that I'd seen her on the red carpet, mm. I'd premiere, forgotten until I'd forgotten. we saw her in the car. Really, um, Sydney Sweeney, who we've seen in sort of Everything Sucks and Euphoria, yeah. um, who again is someone who seems to be appearing more and more um, in roles. They were all really, really great. And then there was the jarring Lena Dunham. It pulled me from the film it's in like, a oh, way. Fuck, mate, there's Lena Dunham, and this, we knew that she was in it because it had been sort of talked about. But it's just. Whereas the other actresses and the rest of the cast, I was like, yep, they completely buy them as members of the Manson family. She it is just so like, Lena Dunham, guys. I think I think I did lean across to you and said, like, the problem is she's just always Lena Dunham. <laughs> she she's really just, is. Even it's the voice. It's the as soon as you hear the voice, you're like, fuck me. Like I loved, like I really enjoyed Girls, but it was jo- it was jo- it was like I it just really don't was, need to see Lena Dunham. You know, there are other people within the cast who sort of turn up. There's like Scoot Maneri's in there, mm. um, Timothy Oliphant, you know, Luke Perry. There's, there's just loads of like people who are on screen for like two seconds, right? Um, Kurt Russell you know just people that are there and you're like oh my god that's them and then they're gone again cool. yeah because you know they all just really wanted yeah but you tiny piece of the tarantino you're like that's that person yeah but i buy them as that character but that's the thing they all acted like really they were doing really the jobs. yeah they, they were they did really well it was basically like blanket strong performances across everyone 
sort of with the exception of it's just sort of strange wasn't it, it really did her pull being me out a pain it. in the ass i'm really glad that she was only situated in the spawn ranch scenes and that was it she'd be the really annoying hippie that you'd just be like oh my god have a nasty. wash go away she's been gypsy though wasn't she That's yeah just, just so annoying Ooh, um anyway. can i give a really quick shout out to luke perry because it just made me feel really sad especially because he plays someone who is quite frail mm. and you know has a walking stick and he looks quite frail and obviously it's not preempting anything no one knew but it just made me feel really sad because it, it felt like it was nice to see actually it was really nice to see, see him screen. but and again you know old old i say old hollywood he was a young well a, huge, a, a very you know a massive star when he was younger and obviously he was back in roles for riverdale and things but he's very much taken the. it's interesting actually yeah to think about kind of the way that you know Leonardo DiCaprio was like a heartthrob for, mm-hmm. for a very long period of time. Luke Perry, of course, obviously went through that when he was in 90210. So yeah, it is interesting to sort of have him in the film. Um, I guess we kind of talked about the way that the film kind of works structurally. But mm. was there anything in particular that you kind of thought worked or didn't work? Or Yeah, I mean, it's we've kind of touched on it a bit. But the way the film is sort of like a huge amount of the film is like a really extended kind of day in the life and an yeah. extended dialogue scene, especially between, you know, it's a, almost a day in the life. It of starts Dalton in February, Cliff. doesn't it? It does. Yeah, it just seems like you spend, you know, an extended amount of time with these two characters and you move between kind of the focus on Dalton then it feels like it shifts focus onto Cliff and you've got a bit of a shift in focus onto Tate as well and you've got these worlds that are like almost crossing paths but not quite and you're kind of led to wonder how this is all gonna come together at the end um and then you've got this final kind of 20 minute half an hour sequence where it takes a real nose that just goes completely ballistic really which i which we'll we'll talk about in a minute but yeah i liked this idea of sort of intertwining narratives um and kind of points of view i really liked the this as you mentioned before like this blurring of fact and fiction so you know some of this film is so detailed and factual you know really based on made to feel like you are in that time frame and you're in LA and then some of it is just such mad loose fabrication and that intertwining of sort of the actors real lives and you know their personas and what we perceive about them and I found that really interesting as well yeah I think there's definitely that kind of that imagined idea of Hollywood versus like the reality of it and I guess I think that you know whether that's like live on set mm. and offset and or the idea of like stuff that actually happened versus mm. stuff that that maybe could have happened. Are you referring to Leo's headphones? Well, yeah. Because who knows if that's true, but I am I'm going to say that was a a point made who that can, Leonardo DiCaprio was wearing fucking big overhead ear headphones. Who in this can film. who can possibly say? I mean, it feels like it's um there are a lot of the prolonged shots of driving around Los mm, Angeles mm. felt like it's just I've never been to Los Angeles, but my cultural reference point of LA is through film and tv yeah absolutely one thing i know about la is that you have to drive around la because it's not a big and sprawling big and sprawling and it's not a walking city it's a driving city so it's interesting to kind of see that actually yes cliff would have to do like just have to drive everywhere driving and it felt like it was a a love letter to los angeles in that sense when i think of like some of the films that i particularly enjoy that are about the city Mm. so many of them are car centric yeah i think that quentin tarantino plays with that idea by having these like prolonged long shots of people driving around mm. with this kind of idea of like listening to the radio and especially oh, at that so time as you would be that's what you would be doing you'd be in the car listening to the radio if that was what whatever was on yeah would be on and i think that that's he really utilizes that mm. to kind of showcase the soundtrack in it which again 
very Tarantino-esque. Mm-hmm. You know, just sort of those scenes of Cliff in particular driving round because he's got time to oh, kill between, at those scenes. you know, so Rick's good. stuff. Which is, which is brilliant. I liked those, actually. The idea of him filling his time by just driving around and mooching was just, like, right. too much, too much, yeah. So with kind of bearing in mind everything that we've been talking about, uh, shall we address the ending? Yeah, let's address the ending, which was sort of unexpected in a few ways. I think um, I think leading up to this ending, we were all, as we were saying, playing with it was playing with audience expectations. Yep. If you know anything about, you know, the Manson family and Sharon Tate and the killings. As soon as you see like August 9th. Yeah, you're like, okay, I see where we're going. Yeah, we're back here. We know what this is going to culminate in. And you really do expect it to portray these Manson family killings. And I expected it also to be quite gory because A, it's a Tarantino film. B, it had a very strong certificate at the beginning and it said extreme gore and we hadn't had any. I was going to say up to that point, there was nothing. We had a nosebleed. So I was like, this is coming, this is coming. And I felt quite tense. I was sort of preparing myself for it. I mean, I don't, for me, the first sign that I was like, "Mm, okay, maybe something else is going on here is when Maya Hawke is in the car um, Maya Hawke is one of the plays one of the Manson girls, and she makes an excuse to go back to the car to get her knife, and she drives off. Yeah, which isn't you know as far as we're aware what happened. I think someone stayed back in the car. Maybe I think in someone, reality. Yeah, I think um, someone I think someone stayed back in the car, but she drives off, and I was like, okay, hang on, this isn't you know this isn't how this played out. So what is going to go on here? And it turns out that Tarantino again in sort of textbook style, you know, very reminiscent of. Uh, Glorious Bastards decided to flip the entire ending on its head and we watch Cliff Booth high on acid just absolutely mutilate these three Manson followers. It's this idea, it's, you're right, referencing Glorious, it's this kind of revisionist history, isn't it? It's this no- notion of being in the right place at the right time or mm. the wrong place at the right time. The fact that, you know, what happens is Rick hears the car idling, doesn't he? And he mm. goes out, he's just yeah. made some frozen margaritas. Oh, he's got the frozen margarita in his hand. And he goes out into the close where they live and he just sort of has a go and asks them, like, what they're doing and then essentially, like... Just loses them his mind yeah them, he they? sort of like berates them and actually they kind of decide to not go and kill Sharon mm, Tate they mm. don't decide to not go and up to the Polanski house to mm. kind of look for Terry Melcher who obviously that's who they were looking for it, it just completely flips it and it, it the way that they utilize your expectations yeah. you know is I do think that I'd I leaned across to you as as soon as the car like before my Hulk even gets mm, out of the car mm. as soon as you see them going up Cielo Drive mm. on that night mm. I, I did lean across and was like oh to watch her die because I still don't know yeah. and you're you just right. don't know what's gonna go. no and it you is that turning point of like with the kind of her getting out of the car and her driving off you're like oh, okay this isn't gonna go how I think it's uh, gonna yeah go. and I'm very intrigued to see what happens I do think the, ten- the tension because you are you know you are building to something mm. and because mm. throughout the film there has only been like sort of moderately sustained violence and swears mm. you know that you're ramping up <laughs> yeah the certificate something. warned us of something so we knew it was coming um possibly even more violent than i expected though you know that because it is quentin tarantino it's going to be like probably violent but it was like it was like almost comic evil dead level or violence it's what though. it felt like like absolutely had to look away level of it was face very... facial disfigurement is is the uh, it was very intense on. it was very prolonged it was very focused very noisy it, you're right making that kind of evil dead reference because it it was almost slapstick except 
it was so focused on fa- facial violence that I couldn't quite laugh at it because it just made me feel quite unwell. But then there is a big comic element to it as well because Cliff is high off his face and doesn't really know what he's doing. And um, it's it, yeah, it suddenly, it does hit a sudden, like, you're expecting this really horrible, depressing, sobering moment at the end with Sharon Tate that's just going to make us all feel quite ill and it's turned into this sort of slapstick comedy Especially scene. Especially with the way that's obviously the main focus is the fact that, like, Cliff's in the house and he has to kind of keep the, the two of the Manson family mm. at bay. But then you've got Rick who's in the, the pool... He, he doesn't know that any of this is going on and then it kind of moves from the house outside and he has to get mm-hmm. involved and then it just escalates from there. And like the seeds of that scene in particular have been set early on because... Mm because of the way that he kind of utilises the flamethrower the flame he had in a previous film mm-hmm. that he'd worked on. So it's kind of, that's like a not nice little reference back to that. But yeah, it just was just very intense mm-hmm. and very, I don't know, Tarantino-esque, I guess. And it, felt, it did feel like, there you go, you know, we thought we were having this very sentimental, very nostalgic film, feeling things that we don't always feel with a Tarantino, but then at the end, actually, he's got to sneak in a bit of... It's a bit of psych out, wasn't it? Like, oh... Uh, this is actually what you want from me and I do again and that's sort of playing with expectations as well isn't it like we think we know what we want from him we're anticipating this really horrible thing he delivers on the horrible but um it's just absolutely not in the way we expect not at all and then what did you think about the way that so after all of this has been dealt with Mm. and you know Cliff goes to hospital because he's sustained some injuries Mm. and then Rick has left back at the house with his mm. Italian wife and then mm. you know JC brings comes down and is talking because they're next door neighbours obviously yeah. and he's like oh what's been going on blah, what the hell's blah. happened yeah and then obviously you know over the the intercom speaker mm-hmm. you can hear Sharon who's back in the mm-hmm. house and then she talks to her. and this is this really interesting idea that someone like Rick Dalton exists in the frame of reference for those people yeah because that's the bit you sort of don't expect really because the entire film, they've been so far removed from him yeah. and they have seemed like a group of people that he couldn't possibly get near if he tried. And the fact that, as you say, they they know him and, you know, claim to like his work and are fans of him. It sort of, it kind of addresses those really interesting different circles that operate within mm-hmm. Hollywood. So you've got, you know, people that would be working on TV that maybe have had careers before in the yeah. past, but their careers are slightly dwindling. And then you've got people like Polanski and Sharon Tate that have Mm. moved into the neighbourhood that are Mm. probably like slightly more higher up like the hierarchy and and if you Mm. think about LA as a city as a whole and the amount the fact that the like film and TV and entertainment industry as a whole pervades the whole entire city you're going to have people of differing celebrity levels living everywhere so there Mm. is this idea that like someone like Rick Dalton could be living in a nice house next door to someone that is like mega famous yeah they're all going to live in one concentrated area aren't they yeah this he explained because he got his real estate in early like yeah. he bought a house to make sure it, like people knew that he was established yeah and I, I think I feel like and this is something that I've read about since and find like an interesting thing to talk about or think about sorry mm. is this idea of like okay well what happens to Rick beyond this then yeah. what happens to yeah. Sharon Tate beyond this is this idea of actually you know because Rick goes up to the house to have a mm. drink with Sharon and, and Jay well maybe then does he get in with those guys and then mm. Polanski does this then maybe potentially escalate his career yeah. is this gonna so that you know the whole thing throughout the film is this idea of trying to get Rick back into yeah. doing movies he ha- goes away and has a career in Italy does mm. the spaghetti westerns there you know it's kind of trying to get him back up the career ladder mm. well actually is this something that 
is it then going yeah, to well, be it's all this, it's, Yeah, it's that flipping on its head the idea of the unfulfilled potential. Yeah, it's suddenly completely. like, oh, actually, is the potential still there? Like, Sharon Tate hasn't died. What is she going to go on to? Yeah. Rick Dalton is now going for a drink with her. What is he going to go on yeah. to? Um, and, yeah, it ends in a completely different way and just turns, yeah, the sort of their, both characters' kind of trajectory completely on its head, doesn't it? Completely. And it's this sort of, yeah, what will happen next? How will this change you know is that what if it mm. really is that what if mm. it's like what if she hadn't have died mm. that night what would she have gone on to do next mm. you know obviously Rick Dalton is not a real character but it's like well what would this event mm. do to Rick's mm. career what would it what would the effect have on Cliff can he hire Cliff again yeah yeah all of those bits yeah completely so before we address maybe some of the, the, the weaknesses or criticisms of the film, do you want to? Do you have any best scenes, favourite scenes that you wanted to touch upon? Um, I just generally liked the overall sixties vibe. You know, the idea of looking back at old Hollywood, um, the way that Hollywood production is changing, and kind of how Rick is sort of a victim to that. As as a kind of thing that I really enjoyed, mm-hmm. that was one in particular. I did like the dynamic between Rick and Cliff. I feel like Leo and Brad just work so well together. I can imagine they're proper chummy and get on in real life as well. You like to think so i really enjoyed the scene of leon set working on the other tv show where he's posited as the bad guy mm. um the scene in the trailer where he's losing his shit after he kind of messes oh, yeah. up yeah. like we've mentioned before i just really enjoyed that there's also something i don't know it was something quite funny about this idea of the conversation that he has with timothy oliphant's character and he is talking about the, what could have been and that they're mm, sort of mm, comparing mm. careers there's just something quite funny about the fact that you've got timothy oliphant who's someone who's been unjustified right in Deadwood working mm. as a actor who's in a western yeah. who's sort of maybe replacing Rick mm-hmm. Dalton's character that who's just, more successful than more Rick successful. Dalton yeah. Yeah. yeah and it's this idea again thinking about like what Timothy Oliphant's career mm. could have been mm. like because he's very similarly aged to Leo yeah. and he is he's always someone who's kind of taken bit parts mm. in films and has never really had like they must have been aware success. of that when they were having that it just scene. feels super knowing and, and that in particular was something very good i really liked actually that entire sequence in the bar that you can see that they're filming and they're acting and they're doing their dialogue mm. together and then rick brings himself out of it because he messes up a line yeah, and it's yeah. a real just like a behind the scenes glimpse mm. of the way that like an actor's process might work you get suckered in don't you so from because it's such a prolonged scene you start forgetting that you're watching a film within a film yeah. and you're just watching this film with Rick Dalton playing yeah. a character and then when he messes up it kind of jars you out of it again you're like oh yeah no this is a buried narrative within a narrative that felt so cleverly executed mm. I did I really liked the contrast of, of, of Rick again talking with the young actress who's like mm. very serious and very in Trudy it. Trudy and she's like eight, extremely professional eight years old and you've got how she's extremely professional and he's just you know absolutely winging it got drunk last night it's maybe not at his best the way they used to do it it's just this like very like you could absolutely like young hollywood old hollywood it's so absolutely pointed yeah Um, it really is as a whole i i know we've mentioned it but just this like sticking very famous actors in roles for like literally two seconds it's fun isn't Um, it it's just very fun there is something it is like a who's who of yeah i can understand why that would be sort of like irritating to some people but it, i do think it's it's just fun i really enjoy that but they didn't put tim roth in it they cut tim they roth cut out it. i meant to say this to you did you notice at the end where in the credits 
it does where it lists, is it still listing? It lists here, but it says in brackets says cut and that feels like oh yeah I Tim mean it's Roth like amazing as well I really would have liked to have seen it's yeah. interesting isn't I think it James Marsden as well was he like not in, in the no. imagine having so much power that you can cut those actors out of a film imagine how it must feel as an actor to finally get to be in a Quentin Tarantino film <sighs> and then, you'll cut and then out. just be like oh actually we cut your film we didn't, your, you can your pay scenes. Tim Ross wages and not even feature him Madness, crazy isn't it um, and just generally I think the soundtrack is just great I feel like that's always something you can bank on it did definitely send me down a rabbit hole did you listen to it loads on Spotify I've listened to yeah, so yeah I've listened to that and I've listened to a lot of the other soundtracks actually for his other films makes me want to go on a drive right let's do that let's oh wait we're, that. Go- we're going on a drive soon let's do that that sounds great um, yeah so I just there wasn't necessarily like any particular scenes specifically but there was just like mm-hmm. general kind of things that I just particularly enjoyed really what about nice. what about you well I'd, I'd sort of focused on Dalton's scenes as well on set also as we'd mentioned before Tate in the cinema watching the wrecking crew <sighs> I did love that was a real moment and it was nice that we got to spend that time with her and in such a as you'd sort of mentioned it feels so respectful and you really get a sense of her as a person even though she's not saying anything just from watching her watch the screen it is worth bearing in mind actually which this is something I didn't actually realise until Mm. I listened to another podcast but I hadn't realised that Tarantino had met with the Tate Mm, family and he got the approval and that I'm actually kind of glad I didn't know that in advance because mm-hmm. that to me would have immediately put red flags up in terms of like potentially what would have happened in mm-hmm. the film because I can't mm-hmm. imagine they would have signed off on anything that would have just been depicted her being horrifically yeah so that's kind of nice I guess yeah. yeah no that was definitely reassuring isn't it and reassuring that Tarantino went to them and yeah I think that made the right movements in that way also just Cliff's visit to Spawn Ranch oh god that um, sequence is so good when he goes to see George, who is that? He owns the ranch, and he, you know, he was there back in the day when it was used as a film set. And Cliff goes there, and he's sort of being watched very closely by the Manson family members. That's so ominous. Um, so ominous, and he decides that he wants to go and visit George, who's in the little house at the end of the the ranch and you know you're totally led to believe that this guy's going to be dead and it's just so tense just a very grumpy Bruce Dern asleep. very very tense yeah and you're wondering what Cliff's going to have to do to get out of it so I really enjoyed that entire scene as well I'm glad we got to spend quite a lot of time with Cliff not just because I really fancy Brad Pitt but also maybe because I really fancy Brad Pitt 100% valid so I guess we've kind of skirted around the fact that there are definitely valid criticisms of the film mm. um, was there anything in particular that you either personally felt or that you've read about since that you've kind of gone like yeah I get that or I don't get that this is when where my thoughts feel like they've become a little bit more muddled and there's things that I'm undecided about so bear with me I guess at the end of the day it is quite a masculine film um, it's a very male fronted film yeah. and I felt that very much yeah. and that's probably why I feel the need to apologise for enjoying it which is you know fair but also a bit ludicrous a lot of people have sort of talked about whether it's misogynistic that A, Sharon Tate doesn't get, um, you know, a sort of, she isn't the lead in this film. She isn't the lead focus of this film. Um, and also that the, you know, maybe the Manson girls don't get as much backstory as they should. I don't know how you feel about my, my thoughts are sort of twofold in that 
when it comes to the Manson girls, I actually feel like I've heard a lot about them in the past already. Yeah. Just because they're female, I don't really feel the need to hear all about them again because, my God, have I heard almost as much about them as I had about Charles Manson. It's just something that I I didn't feel that was necessary for this film. I feel like if you're desperately in the dark about the way the Manson Mm. family operated and the way that Charles Manson manipulated those women into doing various things and just generally getting involved in his kind of antics Mm. I guess there are Mm. other things other places yeah you could seek out that information yes I just felt like that it would have for me in this in this context it would have felt needless so yeah, I, that would. wasn't something that i was like oh i just really wish i knew more about squeaky's motivations because yeah. i feel like i've absorbed a lot of information already about her so much Do you know what I mean? so much and again it didn't feel like the time or the place did it and i feel like that again goes right back to what we were saying at the beginning about this idea of like you bring to the film a lot of understanding mm-hmm. about the Manson family and for you me do. like it was not an issue because no. I kind of already knew the backstory so that's kind of how I felt and with the Tate aspect as we said like I think we both were really grateful for the moments that we did have with her I actually was surprised at how okay I was with the way that this film is structured in terms of how much focus is actually put on Tate because it is a film predominantly about Dalton and Cliff. And I I agree that we are probably due a film that focuses much more on Sharon Tate by now. That is a story that, you know, as we said, like has been covered on a podcast, but not much else. I don't think I really need a film from Quentin Tarantino about it. He's not the one that I want to tell that story do you know what i mean so if he's going to focus on this era and fold in the story of the manson family it's sort of fine by me that he she isn't the 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 sole focus because there are a few issues around the you know the ending in particular and the way that happens and it's that age-old question of whether we need a man to write a woman's story like that anyway and i think you know if tarantino is going to tell this this story set in this time i certainly don't need him to be the one to tell the story of Sharon Tate no I completely agree and and to that end actually that was one of the things that I did think a lot about is this idea that the slightly odd and confusing idea that like could Sharon have been saved by the intervention of Cliff and Rick and obviously those are two people that don't Mm -hmm. exist and that as an idea like we've said plays into this sort of like what what could have happened Mm. what if that scenario and it was slightly odd to sort of have to sort of think about like oh well actually if there'd been two men around then maybe she would have been yeah i think i think you're right actually that is uh, if anything when if you if you're looking at the the tate aspect that is probably the most problematic aspect is this idea of the savior the narrative and is it arrogant of tarantino to sort of try and write history's wrong and sort of fantasise that he can kind of save... He and Cliff and Rick can save Sharon Tate. Completely. I mean, it's interesting to kind of look at the way and I think that this this film has rightly so sparked a lot of discussion about the way that Quentin Tarantino does represent and depict women Mm -hmm. in his films Um, there was a really interesting piece on BuzzFeed by Alison Wilmore which was a history of women in Quentin Tarantino movies Mm. Um, and she looks at kind of key female characters in his films and sort of interrogates how they're represented Mm -hmm. and and sort of uh, Tarantino's viewpoints and stuff and um, this is one of the kind of the first from a paragraph right at the beginning 
being just sort of interesting it says for what it's worth i don't think tarantino hates women i think he is sincerely invested in and likes writing women characters and gives more thought to their interiority than some other lauded filmmakers have but i also think that when it suits him to not think about these things he doesn't that he's perfectly comfortable in rejecting even the possibility that he's made missteps because he's so sure of his own authorship and his right to be king of his own cinematic worlds that's so true actually and that, that kind of feels like it makes makes peace with my two kind of my brain which is pulling in two directions thinking about tarantino and his i feel like i've kind of over the last few uh, few days in particular i've read a lot of pieces about the film about tarantino and this was the one of the the ones that i read and i was like actually i feel like it really grapples with my conflicting feelings about the film and tarantino generally yep. in a really coherent way mm. and just that paragraph in particular when i read yeah. that i was like that is so true actually i feel like he he's very good i think at writing female characters sometimes and he does this is the argument that people have had isn't it like you know oh tarantino never you know margot robbie and sharon tate is just another example of tarantino not featuring you know women prominently in his films and then people come back and say what about kill bill what about you know all this stuff and it just goes back and forth and back and forth and it's kind of it can it can be true in both ways completely i do think that he he's capable of doing it but then also i feel like he has a tendency to sometimes avoid the fact that there are very valid criticism he'll avoid any criticism though that's what he does completely and i think he's so absorbed in his own world he's a real arrogant fuck yeah like, and and i don't know i just felt like this piece in particular i was like mm. yep that's very we'll, we'll have to link very... to that because it sounds um, yeah yeah i also wanted to address despite him you know being the most visually pleasing character on the screen cliff was a bit odd in some aspects he was sort of <sighs> posited as this very kind of cool very funny guy very laid back and i think you're supposed to you know quite like him but he's also quite the sociopath and there's this weird flash to this backstory about him that maybe he killed his wife or probably killed his wife and you know i don't know i felt like i was being made to like him but also like what the fuck is that about and it's never touched on again and then even at the end really funny you know really great that he's you know managed to defend his friends and kill the baddies but also he's fucking like high as fuck smashing these girls faces to pieces like it's not actually that he's not that heroic he's not really the war hero that cliff is a very interesting character because i feel like you're made to almost fall in love with him Mm -hmm. because he's such a contrast to kind of not really a such he doesn't person. sleep with uh, Margaret Qualley's character who's named Pussycat. <laughs> yeah. Pussycat. You know, you expect the narrative sort of leads you to think that, oh, he's probably going to, you know, maybe have sex with this really young Manson girl. And then he doesn't because he's, you know, I don't know, that, somewhat that, the big man, the hero. That in particular, I didn't like the implication of that because the fact that it, it kind of, it posited it as a thing that was like definitely going to happen, yeah. that he definitely wanted to happen. And yet he finds out that she is underage. And like the fact that he he's kind of... To draw the the fact that he draws a line under it is you're supposed to be like oh well done what a lovely man never mind the fact that he probably definitely killed his wife because she was quite annoying the wife thing is just a very strange thing i don't know why they put that in there i think i just haven't figured it out and i think i read an interesting thing about how it kind of it definitely plays with this idea of like what you know about that actor specifically Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. you could read so much into that about brad pitt and his prior relationships and and ends of Mm. his marriages and stuff if you particularly wanted to but i just i don't know what the function of it was it was a weird blip other than saying that like people don't like cliff 
for a reason and that maybe Cliff has got maybe he contains multitudes maybe there's yeah, lots about him I mean I him. guess that's what it is but then it it just felt like it was dished out as like a haha no but he killed his wife anyway move on and it was just never readdressed and then at the end you know you're ecstatic for him you know for managing to survive and the fact that he and rick are best buddies again it's all great and it just i don't know it was just very odd i couldn't get my i couldn't get a grasp on his character at all i kind of got a sense of who rick was Mm. as a person as pathetic as he could be I found Cliff a bit odd. No, and I think that's maybe the point. I yeah, think I mean, I found him the most interesting character, but also... There's something about the way that he's almost posited as this kind of co-pilot. So you've got Rick, who is the cowboy, and there's a there's a scene, I think it's towards the beginning, mm. where it's like their feet and you've got... Oh my Rick god! Wearing his cowboy, the cowboy boots. boots, and then you've got Cliff wearing his moccasins, moccasins and it's very much this like Lone Ranger Tanto yeah. visual it reference really is, point. Yeah. And I think that's what you're supposed to buy into mm. is this sort of idea. I think one of the tattoos that Cliff has is of a Native American on mm. his arm, and it very much is this like he's meant to be like the laid back, chilled like bit more maybe more of a pacifist maybe yeah. more you know but the useful one as well yeah the, and the th- grounding one that yeah yeah completely so I, I think that i think that he's purposefully perhaps mm. made to be this sort of like un not unknowable mm-hmm. but like there's a lot of complexities yeah. to him just on cliff as well i'm not sure i particularly enjoyed the bruce lee i think stuff. that's something that's come up with a lot of people i know there's been a lot of criticism around that especially around around the portrayal of Lee. I think his daughter, Shannon, had said that film made him, sort of portrayed him as an arrogant asshole who was full of hot air and it was just wildly out of character for how Bruce Lee would have actually behaved. Which, given they met with Tate's family and it sounds like they tried to be relatively respectful about that sort of thing, it does seem weird that they just suddenly went kind of rogue with the Bruce Lee aspect and did something a bit unflattering with his character. Going back to that Alison Wilmore piece, mm. I think that there is something about, if you spoke to Quentin Tarantino about mm. it or you interrogated him specifically about that representation in the film, mm-hmm. I feel like he would say to you that, that actually it was an homage because he really respects Lee mm. and his work. And if you think about the fact that like Tarantino has a history of like being very interested in like martial arts films yeah. and yeah. films from sort of like kung fu films mm-hmm. and everything like mm-hmm. that so i feel like he thinks that it's a very respectful to include him in the yeah. film as a cultural figure from that particular period is mm-hmm. like a nice nod and an homage but actually i don't think he necessarily would see it from the other side of it so I, I found i found that criticism very interesting it just felt like i understand how it situates itself within the film but it, it did feel for me a little bit more of an exercise of cliff being able to show oh yeah he just completely yeah set himself over someone who's known for being the best it was just sort of designed to make cliff look great and but it did make bruce lee look like a bit of a just a bit of a show off and a bit of a pig really yeah which Um, i don't think i just don't understand the point of it i didn't really understand the point of that it felt like a bit of a again just a bit of a that was a weird scene wasn't it that was another scene that i think they could have easily cut and it wouldn't have had any bearing on the plot the only reference later on that you have to lee anyway is when sharon tate's in the cinema and she's watching herself on Mm, screen and then you see that 
so she's sort of doing kind of some of the actions moves. that she would have done on the film and set and then you learn from her kind of flashbacks mm. thinking about it that she was instructed by Bruce Lee yeah whether that's the case or not I don't know but Who that's, knows the if only, that's a fabrication that's yeah. the only other reference point as well but I mean the only other thing that I particularly wanted mm. to point out and it's not necessarily a criticism it's more of an observation it's just this weird thing that I think continually happens now and we mentioned this when we were talking about Big Little Lies actually Mm. when we were doing our TV discussion in the last episode it's this idea of something being instantly memed off the back of the trailer there was just something and this this isn't necessarily a criticism of Tarantino or anything else but it's more just there's something quite jarring about seeing and experiencing a moment in a film Mm. that has been memed from the trailer so there's that scene that we talked about that I really enjoyed of um, Rick Dalton on set with Trudy where he does this very impassioned scene (laughs) and she leans across to him and she says in his ear that was the best acting I've ever seen in my life or words to those effect and then you can see Rick getting very choked up and he starts to cry and he you know puts his fist to his mouth and in advance of that film, that had been just memed so much and yeah. was being Top used for different that. things. I mean, I, I've done it, can't speak for myself, but it's just really, this This is this thing that keeps happening now with stuff in advance. Especially does it lessen the impact of those moments? It does. Do and think? there was something like, that was one of the only sort of scenes that I'd remembered from the trailer mm-hmm. like I, I've seen I'd seen the trailer loads in the build up to this but apart from the music and sort of you know shots of Brad and Leo walking mm-hmm. or driving or whatever that was the one thing that I, f- I kept seeing online on yeah, Twitter yeah. and everything in the build up and then when it actually happened as soon as they were on set as soon like, as oh, I, I know this bit. girl I was like yeah. oh that's the little girl from the meme that's she's going to do that scene. thing and it was just it was just very, yeah, yeah. very seen, you know, bizarre. It was mm-hmm. just really bizarre. And it's just this thing that keeps happening, that I've yeah. noticed keeps happening. And I'm I'm absolutely a victim of it when... I mean, I follow a few, like, out-of-context Twitter accounts or Instagrams or stuff like that, and you just see things in advance mm-hmm. of, like, maybe watching an episode or watching yeah, a film. Yeah. It's just this really jarring, like... It is odd, oh, isn't that's it? that's that thing I've I seen. I wonder how much more that's going to come into play as well. Just so, more and more and more. So yeah. whole life is dictated by gifts. Um, was there anything else, sort of criticism-wise, that you thought of? I mean, I just feel like there's been there's been lots of interesting discussion about this film, and I have very much enjoyed engaging with some of it to a point. Yeah, I do think that when you've got someone like Quentin Tarantino, it, there are like absolute extremes that it goes from. It goes yeah. from people that are like vehemently defending him because they mm-hmm, consider him mm-hmm. to be the messiah and won't hear anything. Yeah of him to people who just absolutely want to unpick everything down to the bones in a way that I don't necessarily think is particularly useful no I'm starting to feel quite comfortable with existing somewhere on that spectrum and feeling a little bit of both feeling that I really enjoyed this film and will happily watch it again and sort of laughed out loud quite a lot um, and thought it was a very clever film and really captured a moment but also can completely a understand the criticism levelled at it and also not quite I can't quite make up my mind about a few aspects still and I don't know if I will I might do I might not but um you know there's some bits that I'm still grappling with and I'm not sure how I feel about them overall but I'm kind of I'm okay with that and I don't know I feel like I was 
I was dreading, not dreading going to see it, but I was nervous going to see it because I felt guilty already for feeling like I was going to like it. Yeah, completely. Um, I definitely feel the same. And I mean, we're actually seeing it for a second time this week. I'm interested to see it again and see how I feel. Yeah, completely. Because I think that actually, I like we said, I feel like we'd expected certain things from it, mm. knowing certain things about it going into it. And it will be interesting to kind of see it for a second time and see if we take anything away differently. I mean, I always feel like second viewings of Tarantino or third viewings or fourth viewings Feelings, mm. you know you take something new away mm. each time anyway so i'll mm. be really interesting to see actually having now read a lot of the articles yeah, and listened yeah. to a lot of the podcasts that mm. i've been sort of banking mm-hmm. until after we'd seen it mm. actually whether i'll kind of come at it from a new perspective or pick up anything different or yeah. whether just generally actually see what we take away from a second viewing but i mean i enjoyed it and, and i did too you know it i think generally it's a strong i mean if you're looking at it as a tarantino film it's a strong film yeah definitely. it is a good film it's one of the best films he's done in a while for 10 years definitely better than hateful eight so that's our not so mini sewed done half mini sewed what's it called a half is sewed i don't know proper episode that we'll probably forget to mislabel and do the wrong number on or whatever Um, probably if you remember to listen to episode 34 which kind of precedes that we talk about some tv bits and some very important harry styles and timothy chalamet related news News, which um, always on the pulse guys who doesn't need that um if you want to find us online you're twitter at the thirst soundcloud.com forward slash the thirst pod you can subscribe and review us on apple Podcasts by searching the thirst we're on instagram the thirst pod thirstpod.wordpress.com is our blog and we're also on facebook as well uh bye bye